As I said in the first service, never have I missed Pastor Joe as much as I am missing him right now. For you that don't know, he's on sabbatical, and uh, I'm Dick Drown, one of the elders, and I will bring, be bringing the message to you this morning. But let's first pray and ask Joe to, or ask God to bless Joe and his family. See, can't tell I'm nervous, huh? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your graciousness to us. Thank you for your loving kindness and for your mercies. And we would pray for the friend zone, especially for Joe as he's on sabbatical, that you would give him joy, that you would give him rest, that you would refresh his soul, and that, that his family would also be with him in this. And we're thankful, so thankful for him and for his faithfulness to serve here at this church. And we would also pray for those that have had surgeries, for those that are not feeling well, that you would be gracious to them, that you would heal them, that you would bring about a restoration of health, and that they would uh, be with us again. For Nancy, we pray that her blood pressure would be controlled and that you would keep the pain down. Thankful for Dale being back with us, we pray for his brother Gary as he's had surgery that you would comfort and uh, heal him too. Thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you are to us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's turn in the scripture and we will read together. You can follow along. Psalm 139. And uh, if you're looking in the Pew, Pew Bible, that's page 444. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. And you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn... If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. For you form my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we're thankful that your word speaks of you this morning, tells of your greatness, tells of your careful love of each one of us. It moves us to trust you and want to be with you more in our thoughts and our actions. So we pray that as we go through Psalm 139, that you would refresh our minds and that it might be a profitable time together as your Spirit teaches us in these things that we need to know. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 139 is a psalm of David that was meant to be sung, as were many of the psalms. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, was a popular hymn titled, The Law of the Lord is Perfect. And this was sung in the 1970s. I remember singing this in Enterprise, Alabama, when I was a young man in the service. And I'm not going to sing it now, but uh, I want to just read the first stanza and the chorus. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. What is amazing about this psalm is the depth of understanding about God that David had. How did he come to know God, the sovereign God, the God all-knowing, the God always present? To quote Charles Spurgeon, and this is a long quote, it has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existing of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to our mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass colt, and with solemn explanation, I am but of yesterday, 
and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. All there is in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And Charles Spurgeon spoke this in January of 1855 when he was 20 years old. So like David, he had found God to be loving and sufficient. And what you would find in Psalm 139, he knew that also. Through the ages, God has desired to reveal himself to his people. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he speaks of himself to Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, who keeps and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Why is David so happy with God as you can plainly see he is in this psalm? Is it possible that the more you know God makes you better with God better to you? And what about the frustrations people have with God? The first question asked by many people after the Sandy Hook elementary shootings were, where is God? Or the Columbine shooting, the same question arose. But the family of Rachel Scott, the young woman killed for his, her faith, was not, the question was not there. But they knew there was a deeper reason why these things happened the way they did. Sometimes you separate your situation in life from those recorded in Scripture because those people were special and you and I are just ordinary people. Let's look at David a little closer. He was one of seven sons of Jesse, and he was not considered by his father as one to be looked at when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. He was out looking after the sheep. He was pursued by Saul, who wanted to kill him, to the extent that he sought refuge in the region of the Philistines and had to act like a crazy man so the Philistines wouldn't kill him. 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2, give an accurate picture of David's situation. 
So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. This is the future king of Israel, and it doesn't look all that special right at this moment. Yet in times such as these, we find when we know God as David did, that we can fall in bed at night and be totally thrilled with God and oh so thankful that he is our heavenly father. To contemplate who God is, but never read the scripture would be futile indeed, for God is revealed through the scriptures, and if we were to know him, it would be through such reading. Second Peter Chapter 2, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It is quite evident that David has learned from scripture and incorporated these things into his own experience. And the result is his expression of who God is and an overflowing love and admiration for his creature, for his creator. Let's look at God's sovereignty found in verses 1 through 13 of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. The word search means and carries the idea of being examined intimately. And to know me is to know me properly, to ascertain by seeing. Now, some of you think you know your spouses, and you probably do after so many years of marriage, but you would never know another person like God knows you. Verses 2 and following are simply illustrations of this examining and knowing by seeing. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Verse 3, you scrutinize my journey and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with my manner of life. Verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Wouldn't it be good if he could shut our mouth sometimes when he knows that word on our tongue? I could have used that several times. Verse 5 has a totally different thing. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And this is not in a restrictive sense. Sometimes we think, well, God's got me hemmed in. This is more in a military sense in that God has your back and he's out in front fighting for you. So you can see how David could relax in this knowledge. God, you're behind me and before me. Here's a quote from St. Patrick, who lived in the years 385 to 486. Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. St. Patrick, at the age of 16, was carried off by Irish pirates. He lived in Scotland. And though it's, he was carried to County Down, which is part of Northern Ireland, just under Belfast, and 
the distance between Scotland and Ireland there is about 18 miles. So he probably wasn't carried a great distance from where he grew up, but he was light years away in, uh, from the culture and the religious understanding he was accustomed to. Ireland at that time was gripped by Druid priests, and they were into spirit worship and uh, other things that the Celtic religion taught. And so the, the difference between what St. Patrick knew and what he was experiencing now was just totally different. Uh, he was given over to an Irish lord, and his job was to tend sheep. I don't know if you tend to sheep, but you have plenty of time to contemplate the greatness of God and his character and his sovereign being. Later he escaped, and he got back to Scotland. But when he got home, he realized he had a very big burden for the people of Ireland. And he went back and he ministered, bringing the gospel to the Irish people. And uh, even though he ministered many years, it wasn't without hardship and it wasn't without ridicule. But uh, he was resting in who God was. Several songwriters have captured these same truths that David and St. Patrick knew. You can be calm when there are storms all around you. Luther writes these words, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. The song, We Rest on Thee, was sung by five young missionaries just before they departed for a remote Ecuadorian tribe. They never returned to their homes. But they were killed a few days later in January 1956 by these very Indians they were bringing the gospel to. Here's the words of that song. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Some might say they failed. But. The rest of the story is that two of the wives of the husbands that were killed and a sister of another missionary that were killed went back to that tribe within a few years. And as a result, the whole tribe turned to God. I should say not all of them, but most of them. And they turned from their evil waves and they followed God's path that is given in the gospel. In 2010, I went to Ecuador and it worked side by side with a fine young Christian man named Manua. He was the grandson of one of these persons that had killed one of the missionaries, and uh, just a fine young man. And then another grandson of this same person was preaching in a little town called Puyos, and that's where we went every Sunday. We didn't know Spanish, we didn't know any of the Indian dialects, but we were lucky to have a young lady from the States who knew Spanish fluently, and she not only translated for us what he was preaching, but she gave running commentary of why he was preaching what he was preaching. And he preached from Matthew about taking up your cross daily and following Christ. And while she was talking about this, she says, and he would know, because last week his four-year-old daughter was sitting on the back end of a dugout canoe and an anaconda snake came up and grabbed her, and that's the last they'd seen of her. And so she was gone. So he knew about taking up his cross. 
Let's read verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. These words are echoed by the prophet Isaiah when he penned these words from Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In verse 7, we see the omnipresence of the sovereign God. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Some people would like to escape the presence of God because uh, their actions bespeak that they're not a friend of God, and yet there's nowhere you can go to be away from the presence of God. Of course we expect him to be in heaven. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol was the Netherland that they spoke of in the Old Testament and some in the New it was a place of uh, the dead, a place when you died, you didn't return from there. And it was also the place for the evildoers and also a place for the righteous. And the place for the righteous was referred to as Abraham's bosom. And uh, though these two places were in Sheol, they were separated by a great gulf. If you remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man wanted Lazarus to bring a drop of water to his tongue because he was in torment. And the answer was no, because there's a great gulf fixed between us. So, in verses 9 through 12, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. It's maybe not so true here because we're in the northern hemisphere, but if you're right on the equator, day and night are a quick change. In other words, any of you guys that have been out deer hunting, you know, you get out there in the dark and slowly you see the light come up over the trees. It's not that way on the equator. It's light and then boom, it's dark. And in the morning, it's dark, boom, it's light. So here he's talking about the speed at which light moves. You could move that fast, and yet you cannot get away from the presence of the Lord. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. Most men like to use the darkness as a cloak to do evil do deeds. And uh, here it speaks about God. He sees in the darkness like you and I would see in the light. They're alike to him. In man's beginnings, it speaks here in Psalm 139, you, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Back in the time this was written, they thought the inward parts, which is actually translated kidneys, is where the emotions and the mind were stored. Now, that would be bad for some of us. If we lost our kidneys, you'd lose your mind, but some of us are getting close anyway. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My frame was not hidden from you. The frame of your body is your bones, the structure with what holds everything together. And that was made in secret. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your books were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. This should answer the question, did God wind me up and then just let me go? To exist in my, on my own way in this life? The answer is an emphatic no. God is always there, everywhere, always involved, from before you existed right through the end of your life and into eternity. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's easy to think, hey, I'm on my own. Life is, does anyone care? Does anyone know what I'm going through? Can I get any help here? Not only was all this known before you ever existed, but there is purpose in all that you're experiencing. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his <clears throat> compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And that's very true. God formed us in secret where we could not be seen. He knows everything even before you existed. And just think of his faithfulness in all of this. Now let's move in verses 17 through 18 about God's thoughts toward those he loves. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This looks like David is so intimately knowing who God is that when he falls asleep at night, the last thought on his mind is about God. And when he wakes up in the morning, his first thought is about God. And... Perhaps we need to take a look at our own thought patterns. What are we thinking about when we fall asleep at night? Are we thrilled about God? Are we thrilled about what happened that day, be it good or bad? Are we thrilled the way God brought us through it all? Now we get into some of the most difficult verses in this whole chapter of Psalm 139. David's petition found in verses 19 through 24. Oh, that you would sway, slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. 
Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. These are difficult verses to explain. They just pop out of this text almost like they don't belong. These are known as impeccatory psalms, or as some have come to call them, cursing psalms. While it is always right to be angry at evil, Jesus gives us the final word on how to treat our enemies. Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Luke 6, 27 and 28 says something similar. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. The verses in Psalm 139 are a petition, not doctrine. They express his unsuppressed thoughts, but leave it up to God to act rightly. Some suggest it's a good thing to take these kinds of thoughts to God, entrusting God with the task of retributive justice. Jesus said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Prayers to God in this manner place vengeance in the proper hand. Now the last two verses, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Surely there's no need for God to petition God to search him, because it's stated in verse 1, that is exactly what God has done then there must be a different reason for this request. It is a request to give clarity to all that God knows about David. He has just released some heavy problems over to God. Now he desires that God reveal to him what is right. His last request is, lead me in your eternal way. Now that we've read Psalm 139 and we've commented on them, so in light of all of this, what are we to do? It is one thing to know that God is sovereign, that he is omniscient, knows all things, and also omnipresent, always present, no matter where we are. But it is another thing to experience these things in our everyday experiences. When you see how careful God is in his care for you, does it move you to love and trust him to a greater measure than before? Are there many times that you simply relax in the wonderfulness of God, his character, and his interaction with your life experience. Are there things that vex you so much that you can only share them with God your Father and trust him to bring about the best result? Perhaps these things can be best illustrated by the lives of two people, the first being King David, who embraced and took real joy in his daily relationship with God, his creator and his friend. The second is King Solomon, who started good, but soon brought so much worldly outside influence into his experience that it became difficult to hear God and know his thoughts. Here's what David said at the end of his life to his son Solomon in 1 Kings 2, verse 3. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do, 
and wherever you turn. Solomon, on the other hand, at the end of his life, penned these words. Emptiness of emptiness, says the preacher, all is empty. He also said, and I'm sure it was thinking back to his younger days, when he knew God and he followed what God had said, fear God and keep his commandments. Knowing what we know from Psalm 139, I would say we should be very careful in what we fill our life with. Uh, There are so many things in this world that would take your attention from God, that would move it to something else, that you're going to end up like Solomon and say, it's all emptiness at the very end. And not like David. He was still on his deathbed, thrilled at God, the sovereign God, his creator. The one thing that we might take as a verse to help us in this is part of Romans 12, chapter 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in that we should be faithful in the taking in of the Holy Scriptures and following them. Let's pray together, and as I pray, if the men would come forward to serve communion this morning. Thank you, Father, for your graciousness to us, for your careful love for everything that we encounter, for how you shelter us, how you lead us by your right hand, no matter where we are where we don't escape your presence, but you are totally always with us. Thank you so much for these things which give us reason to exalt and to praise your name for the greatness of who you are this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.